0: Is your teen more or less likely to develop a substance use disorder if they take stimulant medication for their ADHD? What is it about your voice and the way your teen reacts? Is your teen such a picky eater that you're really concerned about them? I'm Ann Coleman, attorney turned parent educator and mom to a kid that struggled during his teen years. And you're listening to Speaking of Teens, a twice weekly, science informed podcast that helps you better understand, relate to, and parent your teen. Welcome to our weekly bonus episode. If you're tuning in for the first time today, we do two episodes a week Tuesdays being the deep dive into a single subject, and on Fridays, we do a short take on topics in the news, items of interest, the latest research. Anything that impacts you or your teen or tween. Let's look at the first question. Is your teen more or less likely to develop a substance use disorder if they take stimulant medication for their ADHD? A study published just a couple of days ago, July fifth, 2023, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, found no evidence that giving stimulant medication to kids and teens with ADHD either protects against or leads to substance use or substance use disorder later on. The young adult participants of this recent study had previously been included in a 14-month study back between 1994 and 1996 when they were around 7 to 9 years old. In that study, the researchers were examining demographic, clinical, and treatment variables, including stimulant medications. The researchers of this recent study then followed up with these same participants every two to three years since that initial study until the participants were around 25 years old. And they found no evidence that could point to any association between whether that now adult participant was more or less likely to use or misuse substances if they had taken stimulants for their ADHD when they were younger. You know, I'm pretty sure I mentioned this back in episode 13 on ADHD in adolescence. There are some people, scientists, doctors, parents, who firmly believe giving stimulant medication to their children with ADHD will only teach them to use medication for everything or get them used to being drugged or prime them for addiction, then there's the other side of the argument that mainly only researchers have made, that using stimulant medication helps a kid or teen with ADHD think more clearly and use self-control, and therefore will only increase their ability to resist using substances like marijuana and alcohol. But this study found no evidence that young adults are any more or any less likely to use or misuse substances based on their earlier use of stimulant medications. Now, this is by no means a definitive study because it does contradict other studies that tend to indicate that taking ADHD medication does protect against future substance use but it certainly adds to the body of evidence showing that taking stimulant medications in childhood does not predispose kids for substance use in later years. So please think twice before not giving your child stimulant medications. If I didn't take Adderall daily, I wouldn't be able to bring you this podcast, especially not twice a week. ADHD symptoms most often stick around through adolescence and on into adulthood. Just remember, if your kid has ADHD, it's not something they do on purpose. I wish I didn't have it, and I sure wish my son didn't. But medication does not put them at risk for substance use more than their actual ADHD does. So don't let that be the reason you don't help them with medication. What is it about your voice and the way your teen reacts? This is something else I think you'll find interesting. I first read about this maybe about a year ago, but I feel like I was well aware of the findings before then. I think you'll feel the same. See, back in 2016, a group of researchers at Stanford Medical School discovered that when a child hears their mother's voice, certain circuits in the brain are stimulated, and this brain activity actually lays the groundwork for the child's later social communication skills. These circuits include the reward system, those that deal with emotion processing and facial processing. So, mom's voice is impacting multiple systems in the child's brain. It's a big deal. Mom's voice is usually the first one recognized as an infant and continues to be, as the researchers phrased it, uniquely rewarding throughout a child's young life, right up until they turn about 13 years old. At that point, they no longer find our voice quite so rewarding. Actually, this most recent study done by the same researchers at Stanford around a year ago in the spring of 2022 found that brain activity ramps up for more unfamiliar voices, their peers. This is compared to their moms. And by the way, they didn't even look at dad's voices. Sorry, fellas. But all of this stuff happens with those same brain circuits because they're changing and rearranging to push our kids out of the nest, to lead them on down the road to find their new pack and a mate and to have their own kids. I know it's hard to even think about, but that's how this works. So their brain is stimulated by and drawn to new and different voices, what researchers call non-familial social targets. So they can socialize figure out who they are and find their tribe. They don't do this any more on purpose than they did when they were a baby and they could pick your voice out of a room. It's just how it is. Now, this is all part of that process of them preferring friends over us, of hanging out in their room rather than with us, of choosing to do more risky things with their friends than when they're alone everything going on in their brain right now is telling them to be with their friends, become a pack, have sex, solidify their place and their standing. This is why our voice is the last thing they think about responding to. But there are even more reasons they may tune us out or have a strong reaction to our voice. Another study from back in 2019 out of Cardiff University gives a whole new meaning to don't use that tone with me. Actually, though, it's your tone, the researchers were talking about here. And this really shouldn't surprise us at all, but maybe we just need to be reminded a little more often. What they found was that teens are less likely to cooperate and try to do what's been asked of them when mom uses a controlling tone of voice. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Please turn the volume up. Ha, huh, did you catch what I did there? That was my controlling tone. My son knows it all too well. Why do we expect that to get more out of our teens? This study found that our controlling tone, obviously, evokes negative emotions in our kids and leaves them feeling less close to us. As they say, you get more flies with honey. So keep these things in mind when you're plotting how to approach your teen about something. Don't be surprised if they tune you out or take offense. Now, is your teen such a picky eater that you're actually really concerned about them? Let me tell you about an eating disorder that you may have never heard of before and really should be aware of. It's called, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this, but it's, um, the acronym is AFRID, so AFRID, which stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. Think picky eater turned up to an obsessive level. It's only been a clinical diagnosis recognized by the DSM since 2013. So many clinicians are still not all that familiar with it. Forget what you think about with anorexia or bulimia because kids with this disorder aren't focused on their weight or what their body even looks like. They either lack interest in food or eating or they're afraid of what might happen if they eat certain things or they avoid it because of a certain characteristic of the food itself, like the texture or the taste or the color or even the way it moves, like congealed salad or jello, for example. Many of us have issues with a certain food or two, like I cannot eat a slimy raw oyster to save my life, and I'd rather have any kind of fruit before a grainy pear. But kids and teens with this disorder aren't just picky. They avoid so much food that it leaves them without enough calories to even develop properly. They may need nutritional or medical intervention, And it could result in mental health issues like anxiety and depression, even panic attacks. And lots of kids end up with social issues because they avoid situations where eating is part of the plan. It's just a lot of discomfort for the teen. What's really going on here is some type of fear associated with eating certain foods. They may be scared they'll choke, get sick, or even die. And many times it all stems from some sort of traumatic experience as a child, like getting sick on a food or having an allergic reaction or nearly dying or choking on a food. It can even be caused by a trauma not related to food, like a divorce. One girl I read about would basically live on goldfish crackers, bagels and peanut butter, and an occasional raw carrot or apple if they were peeled just right. She'd scrape the cheese and sauce off pizza, refused butter and syrup on pancakes, and instead of a burger at a barbecue, she'd eat a ketchup sandwich. But her mom said she'd eat any sweets. They were not a problem. So keep all that in mind. To be diagnosed with this disorder, your teen must be negatively impacted, either physically, mentally, or socially. Watch for pickiness that gets more extreme over time, avoiding certain foods they used to enjoy or liking only a handful of foods. Anxiety at mealtimes, fear of choking or getting sick on the food, eating too slowly, lack of appetite or feeling sick after eating there are also physiological signs like dizziness or feeling cold. I'll link several resources for you that discuss the warning signs, the risk factors, and where to get help for your teen. And I'll have all the other links for the other two questions I asked right there in the show notes in the description where you are listening right now. That's it for Speaking of Teens today. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I hope you got something out of today's episode. If you did, please consider sharing it with someone who may need to hear it. I'm sure you know people out there who have teens or who work with teens who could really use your support. And of course, I'd really appreciate it as well. And please come on in and join us in the Speaking of Teens Facebook group for free parenting support from me and other members. There's a link in the show description all the way down at the bottom right where you're listening. Speaking of Teens is sponsored by NeuroGility.com where I help moms build stronger relationships and decrease conflict with their teens. Our producer and editor is Steve Coleman, researched, written, and hosted by me, Ann Coleman. I'll talk to you soon.